Welcome to your number one source of information on women's pelvic health. On this podcast, you will hear from medical experts, pelvic health professionals, holistic healers, and patients themselves in order to learn and understand everything there is to know about regaining and maintaining your pelvic health and becoming your own best advocate for your pelvic floor, the most vital part of our bodies as women. All of the conversations are intimate, raw, and unedited in order to deliver the most authentic information possible. Today, I'm here with Jessica Drummond. She is the founder and CEO of the Integrative Women's Health Institute. She's passionate about caring for and empowering women who struggle with pelvic health conditions, and she is equally passionate about educating and supporting clinicians in confidently and safely using integrative tools to transform women's and pelvic health care. Jessica also has over a decade of experience as a pelvic floor physical therapist, in addition to owning a private women's health clinical nutrition and coaching practice. This gives her a unique perspective on the integrative conservative options for pelvic pain management. So I'm very excited to have Jessica here. I met you um, a few weeks ago, and when I found out what you did, and I had heard your name I actually was signed up for your email newsletters interestingly I'm like I went home I'm like oh my god I put two and two together but I think it's so interesting what you do because a lot of practitioners that people with pelvic pain see that aren't pelvic floor physical therapists don't necessarily have experience in caring for pelvic pain so like if someone were to go see a nutritionist the nutritionist would be great at what they do but they might not understand the pelvic pain component So, or even I found with therapists and psychiatrists, they're great at what they do, but when I have gone to several people for pelvic pain, they don't know what vulvodynia is, so it's really hard for them to understand what I'm going through. So anyways, thank you for being here. Thank you for having (laughs) me, it's my pleasure. And I'm very excited to have you share all of your knowledge with all of the listeners. Thank you. Yeah, so first you want to give us a little bit more of a background uh, into how you got started in this career and what exactly you do. Sure. So I graduated from physical therapy school just about 20 years ago. And, you know, how I decided to do that, I don't know. But I, I was an athlete. I was good at science. So, like, physical therapy, I always expected I would work in orthopedics or sports medicine and that's what I did initially out of school and then I began to specialize my practice into the orthopedic issues related to women's health so women with back pain who happen to be pregnant or women with shoulder surgery related to their breast cancer and I just developed a real interest in these issues of women's health that could be addressed with uh, physical therapy but with a, from a particular approach and at that time the field was pretty small there my mentor I had a number of mentors uh, Fatima Hakim and Holly uh, Herman and Beth Shelley and um, Kathy Wallace and they were among the first generation of women who brought physical therapy to deal with pelvic health concerns because Gynecology existed, obviously, but 
the gynecologists don't look at the musculoskeletal, they don't look at hips, they don't look at muscles, they don't look at how it integrates with your abdomen, with your back. And so that's really how I started in my practice, just a developing interest in that. And then my most complicated clients were always the patients who had chronic pelvic pain. So vulvodynia, endometriosis, uh, just general pelvic pain that was not really diagnosed, um, interstitial cystitis, absolutely. And then what happened to me was after the birth of my first daughter, I had a pretty rough hormonal crash. Uh, which now, every, all that I've learned in the intervening 15 years, because my daughter's now almost 16, um, I recognized was probably a reactivation of the Epstein-Barr virus. Um, I had mono a couple times uh, in t my teenage years. And I was extremely fatigued and anxious and exhausted. And, you know, everyone was like, oh, you just had a baby. This is normal. And, you know, for years, that's kind of the only answer I got other than try some antidepressants or take a nap. And once I learned how to optimize my own hormonal health using nutrition and changing my relationship to stress and changing my exercise and things like that, very lifestyle approach, I realized that because my patients with pelvic pain often had hormonal challenges, that I could bring this perspective back to my most complicated pelvic pain patients. Now, I had no idea if it was gonna work, um, but I started tentatively making some recommendations about nutrition, and one day, one of my patients who was complex pelvic pain, they were gonna just do a hysterectomy, not that anyone really thought that was gonna help, but they didn't really know what else to do. And you know, and at the time, it was more common to just do a hysterectomy for pelvic pain. It's still pretty common. Don't, doesn't generally work. Um, and then you have a lot of other issues. But right before th she did that, she's like, you know, I'm gonna do what Jessica asked me to do and you know, stop eating gluten and dairy and eat lots more vegetables and things like that. And her pain went away because what was going on was she had a sensitivity to dairy. And she only would eat dairy, we lived in Texas at the time, right before her period when she would have like Mexican food cravings. And so that would trigger her pain. And they all, everyone kept thinking it was her periods and da 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 da. And it's rarely, you know, now having a lot more experience in this, it's really rarely that simple but it can be. And so once I saw that, you know, I was like, oh, we have to figure this out. So I did a lot more training. I ended up getting a doctorate in clinical nutrition. You know, since then I've trained hundreds of colleagues and treated thousands of patients. And, you know, what I realized was that kind of taking this bigger holistic approach allowed me to integrate all I knew as a physical therapist for pelvic pain with what I've learned in, you know, in the interim uh, about functional nutrition and, and um, general lifestyle medicine. It's crazy that, like, so I've always been someone who is incredibly interested in health and wellness. And even before I had my own pelvic pain, I was interested in women's health. And I became a health and wellness coach and at the same time, I was in school for graphic design, so I didn't really know like how I, what I wanted to do with health and wellness and 
how I could like incorporate that into my career. And then I coincidentally, ironically, simultaneously started to develop like severe vulvodynia and IC symptoms. And I became really, really interested in like this area of women's health. And I realized that like, this is something that no one is talking about. And practitioners talk about it, but it's really hard for patients to get to a place where they're open about it and then where they hear other patients talk about it. So that's why I started this platform was so that practitioners like yourself could come on and educate patients and practitioners and then patients could also hear other patient stories as well. So we kind of broke it into three categories today. We, under the umbrella of pelvic pain, um, vulvodynia, IC, and endometriosis. So it depends more on the person than right. the diagnosis. So in all three cases, mm -hmm. there are probably components of both inflammatory and autoimmunity. So I've done a little bit of research specifically in, in vulvodynia, right. testing this theory, some case studies that we published a few years ago that considered that vulvodynia is potentially an autoimmune condition which that's what we talked briefly yeah. about which is so interesting and i think it definitely has autoimmune components you know if, i don't know who gets to label things autoimmune conditions mm -hmm. but whatever so how we address and, and endometriosis also has some autoimmune features it has it it's sort of more like a, a non-cancerous cancer right it's right. growths um, related to aberrant cells, which everyone has. It's like everyone has aberrant cancer cells. They don't all turn into cancer. Um, similarly, when, when you look at autopsies of brains of people with um, uh, people that are just in their 80s or 90s, even though they've not been diagnosed with dementia or Alzheimer's, at a certain point, pretty much everyone has the tangles and plaques of uh, um, of um, uh, Alzheimer's disease. So there are these conditions like endo, like cancer, like Alzheimer's that have these growths and um, certain components related to a disease process, but they're not always activated in everyone, even though everyone may have some of these cells. So if we consider things like endometriosis, cancer, Alzheimer's, there are you know, growths, aberrant cells, but probably, but those, those often exist in people who don't have symptoms, who don't have active cancer or active Alzheimer's. But those cells then in, uh, react with an inflammatory environment or an environmental toxin environment. So what we can do with nutrition that gives patients with endometriosis, vulvodynia, I see some power is create a better environment cellularly and in their bodies and also in their lives where we reduce inflammation and we optimize the functioning of the digestive, immune, uh, musculoskeletal, nervous system and hormonal systems, although sometimes that's a little tricky. Mm -hmm. So it's more about the person than the diagnosis when it comes to this nutrition perspective. So the place that we start is, is the person creating an environment digestively with low inflammation where they can absorb all the nutrients they need to 
build neurotransmitters, build hormones, you know, build everything they need in their bodies to be healthy, fight infection and dysbiosis, healthy microbiome, all that stuff, right? Because you could be eating a really healthy diet, but if you've been under a lot of stress or you're dehydrated or you have um, a, an underlying chronic infection or something like that, then the stress, the physiologic stress of that can make it difficult for you to absorb nutrients. And it can also make it difficult for you to break down the foods into the component nutrients that you need to heal. Wouldn't gut issues such as SIBO and Candida also fall under the similar category? Absolutely. Right. So SIBO Which is, is so common. Yeah. I at least have it's found. Everywhere in pelvic pain. Yeah. So who's not bloated who has pelvic pain right like a lot of people so yeah. i mean most people are. i had it horribly for a year i couldn't put a pair of jeans on and i went to a functional medicine doctor and he treated me but like it came back yeah and a year later i'm like i still cannot wear any of my jeans and i like then i i got tested again and i was like i'm sure i have SIBO, and i went i got treated for it but i was much better and i realized that it was a huge problem for me for a long time Right, so it's a system issue, right? Mm -hmm. So how did those bacteria get there? Mm -hmm. Like SIBO doesn't just occur. Someone asked me that the other day and I couldn't give a good answer. I was like, antibiotic overuse? That was the only reason I knew. No, oh. so what happens is the, how can bacteria possibly get into the small intestine? Well, it would have to, so everything we eat is not sterile, right? Right. Everything, on, there's bacteria in all our food, which is basically fine because we all have stomachs, which are high in acid but so many people have low stomach acid because they're either stressed, it takes a lot of physiologic energy to make stomach acid, and a lot of people are on like stomach acid reducing medications, proton pump inhibitors, things like that. So if you don't have the environment in your stomach to kill off the bacteria, you have an entry point for bacteria to get into the small intestine. The other way it can get in is backwashing kind of from the colon. So there's supposed to be a lot of good, healthy probiotic bacteria and even some aberrant bacteria in the colon. That's a big bacterial environment. That environment is not supposed to occur in the small intestine. There's a door called the ileocecal valve. But if you've had surgery for endometriosis or you know bowel surgery or any other pelvic surgery, that door could potentially be stuck open or there could be adhesions. Other ways the door could be stuck open is you just sit 20 hours a week, you know, like this, mm -hmm. or you have pelvic pain, so you're kind of guarding all the time and kind of crunching the area, must, you know, from a more functional perspective. So, so those two things become really important for optimizing the environment in the small intestine, which is where all the nutrients are absorbed. So where we have to begin is from the mouth step-by-step step, all the way down to the anus. When digestion works, obviously we still wanna be eating healthy food, but usually we can make the diet more flexible so we don't have to limit so many things. So we start with chewing. And well, also just eating in a calm situation. Mm -hmm. A lot of people eat in the car or they eat while they're yelling at their kids or you know, on the subway. I don't, Maybe not on the subway, that's gross, but you know, <laughs> wherever. And um, so eating in a calm situation sets up a hormonal environment that improves in, uh, absorption. Then the ideal number of times to chew a bite of food is what? Any guesses? Like 30? 
40. 40. Not bad. Not bad. And that's for hard things. So I aim for 20-ish to 40-ish mm -hmm. would be optimal. Nobody does that. We're like rushing, talking, right? Watching TV. So slowing it down, really chewing because your stomach does not have teeth. You've got to break it down mechanically to absorb all the proteins you need that your brain needs to help calm pain. Then we get to the stomach and it has to be acidic enough. A lot of times we need to supplement and support that in patients that have had chronic pain because it's low. And same thing with enzymes in the small intestine. Those can often be low. They take a lot of energy to create. Then the lining of the small intestine is irritated by several things. Stress. This is when medications can irritate it. Uh, pain management, even uh, anti-inflammatories, NSAIDs, things like that can really irritate the lining of the small intestine. Antibiotics food additives, um, environmental toxins, any kind of physiologic or emotional stress, anything that increases the cortisol. So, you know, if you have chronic pain and you have chronic pelvic pain in particular, you probably have some emotional stress. Definitely. So, you know, it's affecting your relationships, it's painful. Um, so that can break down the lining. And so we use some specific nutrients to help soothe that lining and heal it up. Also address the lifestyle factors as much as they're modifiable. I mean, you know, there are some things about this we can't change immediately, but we're on the path. And then making sure that valve is moving, which you can do with um, visceral physical therapy with a pelvic expert physical therapist. There are also some herbs you can take to help the motility of the gut so things aren't moving through it too slowly. Um, things like artichoke and ginger help move the, you know, peristalsis. And then how are you toileting? You know, are you relaxing the pelvic floor enough so you're not constipated? How's your gut bacteria? Do you have any issues with things like histamines or oxalates? So that's how we address food in pelvic pain in a way that's very personalized. And then once the digestive system works, then we have to support an anti-inflammatory and nutrient-dense lifestyle. So lots of vegetables, high-quality proteins. Animal proteins are a little bit better. I mean, having both is, is okay, but animal proteins are a little better absorbed, higher, you know, you get more um, uh, amino acids, which is really what we need for the brain in this case. And healthy fats are essential for um, hormones. And a lot of patients that I, when I first started doing this, everyone was on a low-fat diet and that's terrible, then your estrogen's too low, your progesterone's too low. So we need to, you know, improve that as well, so. Can I ask you a question? What are your thoughts on red meat? Red meat is interesting because the data for endometriosis shows that too much red meat, more than one serving a day, will increase your risk for endometriosis. Now, once you already have it, is it gonna worsen the condition? No doubt on that. But my challenge is what kind of red meat are they using, right? probably factory farmed junk versus, you know, pasture raised, grass fed. Right. So I don't find clinically that my, when my patients eat high quality animal protein, because the, the study says the same thing about chicken. So red meat and chicken are both risk factors for endometriosis if eaten more than once a week. Fish is the best mm -hmm. because of omega-3 fats and good quality protein. The hard part about fish is there's nowhere you can get it anymore that it's not contaminated. Mm -hmm. And PCBs and other environmental toxins also contribute to endometriosis. So 
Fish is hard, you know, the cleanest fish you can get is really good for you. Sadly, we live on a really polluted planet at this point. There is one company called Vital Choice mm -hmm. that does get pretty clean um, fish. You know, there are local places and where, you know, people can seek out where they live that have better quality fish. I do still recommend people eat fish because at this point the benefits outweigh the risks. Um, but if you're pregnant or you have pelvic pain, I wouldn't suggest more than once or twice a week. And I, but I do suggest purified fish oil supplements. They mm -hmm. have to be really clean and not rancid and all of that. But fish oil supplements are good. For 10 years, I was a pescatarian. Mm -hmm. And about a year, a little, about a year ago, I stopped and started eating chicken and red meat again. I personally felt like I didn't have, like I was low in iron, I didn't feel fully energized, I felt like weak and lethargic, and I was also dealing with candida, so I was on like a very strict anti-candida diet, and I just couldn't, I didn't have enough options yeah. with only fish, and I was so sick of fish and nuts, Yeah. so I started eating chicken and red meat again, mm -hmm. but I was also very mindful to only eat organic, grass-fed. I wasn't having it three meals a day. I was having it maybe like for dinner three nights a week, either like a grass-fed piece of red meat or like organic chicken. Yeah. Um, and I, ever since changing my diet, I've felt really good. I've like my hormones. I also had PCOS and I got my hormones figured out with I actually got an IUD put in that really helped my hormonal imbalances mm -hmm. but that and the combination of changing my diet and like not eating so much nuts and seeds yeah. has really helped all of my gut issues so yes I think high quality red meat which I do recommend to my patients does a number of things once it's really important for the brain neurotransmitters which is so important for mental health and also hormonal balance and for the the neurotransmitters that calm pain and the, so the bigger does problem that to your brain that's well fascinating. not just red meat but proteins Protein. that you can uh -huh. get high quality With amino red acids meat and, yeah right, okay. and and good quality red meat grass-fed organic is a very good source now some people you know if you have a really serious history of heart disease that may be problematic but I don't know, I just don't see it. I see the lipids looking better. I see the triglycerides looking a lot better. The more important thing is to stop sugar, processed grains, sometimes all grains. Nuts and seeds are okay, but they can be irritating to the immune system for certain people. And again, if we're dealing with vulvodynia, I see, you know, you may need to let go of that for a little bit mm -hmm. because your body isn't processing it. You probably need more digestive enzymes, more, um, more stomach acid, more chewing. You know, the study that said 40 chews a bite was in almonds. So, you know, think about how many almonds people eat now. Like they eat almond cookies, they eat almond muffins. Like this is, it takes work to break down an almond. We're not designed to do it like that. Like it's okay to do that occasionally. But if you're living on like almond pancakes and almond, I know, was, and yeah. I felt so sick. Yeah, because you can't, it's just, it's not absorbable and and it has a lot of omega-6 fats there are problems with with overdoing it mm -hmm. you know if you have almond flour cookies three times a week like uh, whatever it's fine right. but when you're eating it three times a day think about how many almonds you really could eat if you were eating them raw five i mean then you're full 
I know. If you eat them appropriately. But if you're eating them, like, and everything, it's just too much. So I, most of my patients, I do sometimes have patients who are committed to being vegetarian or vegan for various ethical, religious, whatever reasons. And I respect that for sure. But uh, physiologically, most of the women in my practice do better with some animal protein. And it doesn't have to be a huge amount. It can be fish and eggs most of the time. It can be a grass-fed steak once a month. It doesn't have to be like five times a day. But the tissues are more resilient, the soft tissues. And really, when it comes to the pain conditions, unless you're dealing with a post-surgical, post-surgically, you want to make sure the tissues are in good shape or even really pre-surgery. Because the, the, the excision surgeons that I've spoke to about this said, you know, when we work with a vegan, the tissue that I'm dealing with is just mushier. And it's not, it's harder to work with. So, and, and we see the same thing in, for example, postpartum women who have had episiotomies or soft tissue kind of tearing. And if you do animal protein pre and post, they recover better. So after you have a client who has come to you, let's say, with gut issues and vulvodynia, maybe some overlapping IC, and you've healed their gut, what do you do if they still have vulvodynia? What is the kind of more specific lifestyle food changes you'll make for them? Okay, well, so assuming the gut is healed, a lot of times that's all it takes. You know, right. 40% of people who have um, IC and SIBO, or it might even be 47%, if you treat the SIBO, the IC goes away. Like, you don't have to do anything else. And you found this in your practice. Oh, yeah. And that's published. That's true data. Wow. Um, So you don't have to always sort of do anything else. So in about half the cases. Sometimes. um, And this is is for IC involved in Yeah, Endometriosis, you said, is a little more complicated. Right. Well, in endometriosis, it's an underlying disease process. So oftentimes you need excision surgery, which has to be very skillfully done. Mm -hmm. And even if the symptoms, so in many cases we can resolve the symptoms with functional nutrition and physical therapy of endometriosis, but you're still risking your fertility potentially if you don't have a clear diagnosis and you don't have the disease process excised, Mm. potentially. So I always make sure that women who care about their fertility that they get as quickly as possible have an assessment of their endometriosis to see if they're a surgical candidate. Um, So assuming we're talking about pelvic pain in general, you know, or they've already had excision surgery or vulvodynia or interstitial cystitis, there are some specific things. So Vulvodynia in particular, you really want to optimize the microbial environment of the vulvovaginal canal, which is mostly lactobacillus, which has this like antimicrobial stuff it secretes. So making sure the person's not getting chronic yeast and things like that, making sure the hormone environment is good. So sometimes they need more estrogen. Uh, with vulvodynia, there can be lack of blood flow, you know, pelvic floor physical therapy is essential, but also sometimes the estrogen is too low, so we supplement with maca or a local DHEA like Jolva, something like that, which is a topical cream, or you need to do other topical like moisturizers, something like Rosebud Woman or Intimate Rose makes a moisturizer for the vulva that you could use every day, not just for as a lubricant for sex, things like that. 
um, interstitial cystitis, you know, again, bladder training, pelvic physical therapy. Also, that's when sometimes the oxalates can be a problem and making sure that they're bound, that the person's taking enough calcium, um, and making sure that their hormones are supporting, again, a healthy environment in the vulvovaginal canal, because sometimes they do have kind of silent, you know, UTI infections. Um, so things like D-mannose can help to bind E. coli. And it, there may, there, there, I just saw an article recently that sometimes there are other bacteria that are problematic that have been more hidden. Um, so good Was this probiotics. with the antibiotic article in the New York Times? I'm not sure. There was some interesting article I read this week in the New York Times about urinary tract bacteria and how a lot of different strains of bacteria are becoming resistant to antibiotics, making it harder for doctors to treat. Right. So that's when we want to create this environment that's not going to be conducive to allowing bacteria to even thrive there. Mm -hmm. So D-mannose preventatively, lactobacillus ruteri, lactobacillus, um, pla uh, not plantarum. Ramnoso. Ramnosus, yeah. Um, so you can get that in things like Fremdophilus or Metagenics. I was taking that one. one for a while, yeah. Yeah, so certain very specific strains of probiotics, making sure that the person doesn't have constipation, um, you know, s just hygiene habits sometimes. Uh, I actually saw an article just this morning of, you know, uh, it's potentially contributing to vulvodynia to wear like skinny jeans more than four times a week or um, waxing the vulvovaginal area. Well, the vulva, you wouldn't wax your vagina, but <laughs> waxing the vulva. Bikini waxing is one thing, but waxing like the mons pubis opens it up for more uh, potential risk of vulvodynia. So I didn't so read that paper as deeply what, as I just saw you, it today. You saw that in, in where, where is this from? I'll send it Will to you. Will you send it to me? Yeah. That's so interesting for two reasons. One, I used to always wear skinny jeans, like always. Uh -huh. And I now, I, two weeks ago I threw every, I mean, not, they didn't fit me anymore mm -hmm. because my body's just changed since I was 15 years old. I, and I hadn't thrown any of my skinny jeans out, but I threw them all out mm -hmm. and now when I put a pair of pants on like you see I'm wearing a dress they're like I can't even wear tight pants anymore all the jeans that I, and my vulva didn't is like 95% gone I'm like most days of the week I feel good yeah it's a sensory tight where I, I and I'm so aware now of like breathing and, and I when I'm it. yeah and when I when I wear skinny jeans I'm like I can't breathe even if they fit me I just feel like my like I'm stuck tight. yeah it's tight it's uncomfortable even with like workout leggings I'll wear them because I know it's an hour but I still it's like I have this weird sensory thing and not to be TMI but I had a whole Brazilian laser done in because I am just genetically an incredibly hairy person so I had like my armpits laser and my Brazilian Brazilian laser like seven years ago because the hair was just unbearable for me personally mm -hmm. and I have also read that having no vaginal hair can create an well, area it creates that's an environment yeah. that that opens it up to more risk yeah 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 anyways so and I think those are important things for women to know because you know if we're starting to have data that is confirming things that we suspected mm -hmm. you know we want people to be aware because you just want to lower your risk for that. Or if you start to see symptoms of 
any vaginal in irritation, you know, the first thing to do is recognize that it doesn't always cascade into something as severe as vulvodynia, but anything that's irritating to the vulva, you know, let's back off, create mm -hmm. an environment that's optimal for not for the bacteria to thrive and optimal for just the tissues to have good blood flow. And, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of tension in the pelvic floor be as a protective mechanism that's very subconscious. Mm -hmm. So if we can be aware that like, oh, I'm thinking about my vulva too much or I'm worrying about it or it's a little painful and I'm worried about what that is, like just overthinking that can contribute to that like tenseness. So allowing it to be like, oh, there's some normal variation, some, you know, this feels good, this doesn't feel good, let me listen to that, adjust, but not panic about it. Especially if you do have a history of vulvodynia or IC because you are gonna be more hypersensitive. You're gonna be like, oh, what is that? Is, it, is this a flare up, you know? And I think as we allow our bodies to feel a range of experiences, not to the point of severe pain, of course, but without panicking the brain where you know the brain does make the final decision about what the the uh sensation will be and we're giving our body all these other um, signs of safety right you're in a healthy relationship you're not eating sugar you're not eating inflammatory foods you're having pelvic floor physical therapy so the muscles and the blood flow and everything is relaxed and and flowing and strong and you know your hips are have good motion and your your spine you know creating this whole environment of safety is really different from kind of you know waxing everything and tightening it and eating lots of junk and staying up too late and not having support or being nervous in your relationship and all of these different things contribute to the environment which creates any kind of chronic pain situation whether it's headaches or joint pain or whatever i could not agree more with everything that that you've just said and especially i know i keep bringing you back to me but on a personal level when all of these when all of my conditions developed I was eating healthy, but nothing, like I was in a stressful relationship. I was not taking good care of myself and I wasn't happy. And I think, and I was getting chronic infections. And I, I think I thought I was eating healthy, but I wasn't eating probably perfectly. Like as, as like, optimally for you as you could. Yeah, like well, I think I had gut issues and yeah. I wasn't addressing that. I was just like no gluten, no dairy, but I wasn't really fixing what was wrong right and it was like the perfect storm of the bad relationship the gut issues the chronic vaginal infections and it all kind of led to some pretty serious dysfunction and yeah it took a while to figure figure that out but as you just explained perfectly when you're aware of all of the factors that cause these issues it can really be so helpful in order to being able to prevent them from coming in the first place or coming and, and back. Escalating, like and escalating, like preventing them from escalating. Yeah, exactly. so, you know, and, and I was the same way when I, my situation wasn't specifically pelvic pain, but, mm. you know, I thought I was eating healthy, whatever. Like, I didn't have any idea how unstable my blood sugar was or how stressed I was. I mean, we had moved like five times and I had a baby and I've had a new job and my husband was traveling. Like. 
And sometimes when, I think there are periods of time in your life where you just keep adding like something else, something else, it doesn't, you don't notice that you can't handle it. And, and a lot of my patients are very high achieving women, right? They're, they did well in school, they're doing well in work, they have families, they have relationships, and you don't even notice that you've just been like plowing through your whole life. And it does take a big mindset shift to notice the little yellow lights. Like, I'm starting to get fatigued. I'm starting to feel a little anxious. I'm starting to have a little pelvic pain. Sex is starting to be a little irritating. I'm not doing my exercises enough. I'm eating too much sugar. And then we can unwind it before it gets louder and louder mm-hmm. and louder. What are your, well, before I get there, can you tell that specific story that you told me about the patient, and this is probably multiple patients, but you told me one patient of yours who had vulvodynia and you put her on this diet, I think maybe the elimination diet that you modified and her vulvodynia essentially went away? Yeah, so this happens a lot, but we published a study two years ago-ish where actually we published two cases. One woman had done all the physical therapy and everything and she was a vegetarian, not fully vegan, she ate eggs but she was very sensitive to soy, as it turned out, um, and gluten and dairy. And just doing that elimination diet, and not only that, you know, a lot of times people focus on what not to eat, but you also have to add nutrients, you know, more vegetables, more, initially more cooked vegetables, so that the body, it's easier to absorb them, and you don't have, you know, too much bloating and all that stuff, right? So. She did really well, even, you know, she had plateaued in physical therapy, she this, she that, she, same thing, she was in graduate school, she had a relationship that was difficult, and, and so really she was addressing those other things as well, it wasn't in a complete vacuum, but soy was a huge problem for her, and gluten and dairy were also problems. Stopping that, adding more vegetables, adding health, you know, easily absorbed soups and high quality egg protein and plant-based protein powders, things like that. Being, she did well with legumes as long as they were well broken down, you know, she could digest them. Um, really, I mean, she's been fine for years. And we had another case I had, a lot of times with vulvodynia will be kind of silenced during pregnancy because the immune system shifts. And we're just like, oh, well, enjoy it, because it's gonna come flaring back when you're postpartum. The immune system quiets down a little bit in in pregnancy so that the fetus is not rejected. So in the second case, the woman was pregnant, and we did all this gut healing and elimination program. While she was pregnant. While she was pregnant, and we followed her for at least 22 months postpartum. She still had a little SIBO she was struggling with, but her vulvodynia was gone. She had, she had, didn't, it did not come back as we normally see it for years. And, and I mean, I'm assuming it's still gone or she probably would have <laughs> called Reach me. back out. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, so yeah, really important. And so there's an opportunity there, you know, to not just be like, oh, well, let's just sit back and wait till it gets worse again. You know, let's optimize uh, digestive function and gut microbiome while you're pregnant and ideally before, I mean, if I could get my hands on every woman before she was going to have a baby, mm-hmm. we want to optimize all of that about three months before conception because 
it impacts the baby's long-term immune system, it impacts the mom's risk of postpartum depression. There's a lot of benefits to really doing all of that even pre-pregnancy, but you know, as soon as you can is good. And what are your thoughts on gluten in general? You know, for pelvic pain, most people are sensitive to gluten. Um, some aren't, but mm. I almost never see that. I pretty much see that everyone does better with, without gluten. And some people do better without grains at all. Mm -hmm. And then if we move over to interstitial cystitis, is there anything that you've seen specifically in your practice that has caused I see to either flare or worsen, or is it just you know unique to e to each person? But if someone comes to you with I see, is there something you say like, don't eat this or cut out this? Well, with I see, I see more of those more sensitivity things like histamine intolerances, oxalate sensitivities, um, even things like nightshades, spicy foods, more so than in something like vulvodynia. Mm -hmm. um, so. The bladder is just, it's sensitive. Yeah. So we support, you know, histamine optimization. Sometimes they need DAO enzyme support, um, making sure, you know, there's no silent UTI with adding d mannose and, and similar things like that. But sometimes for a little while, we have to do more of a low histamine, low oxalate food plan. Um, but while I'm doing that, I'm really wanting to optimize digestive function so that eventually they can add those things back to the diet. Uh, you know, again, my, my goal is always to make the diet as flexible as possible. And in terms of endo, same question. Is there anything, I mean, I feel like you would say endo's more similar to, to vulvodynia in the sense that it's more of an immune inflammatory, inflammatory. Uh -huh. yeah so with endo I'm really going to be focused on it. curcumin and resveratrol and green tea and mm -hmm. antioxidants really mitochondrial support because a lot of people with endo have a lot of fatigue right too which isn't really addressed very well um, and ideally getting them to optimize the neurotransmitters before they're put on a lot of psych meds because I realize the psych meds are for the pain but it's a it's an aggressive way to do that and so if we can do it by optimizing neurotransmitters nutritionally with like things like GABA supplements or tryptophan or things like that it, I'm I'm seeing that doing that is helpful but it's a little harder if someone's been on a lot of um, modulators that like are more, SSRIs yeah SSRI. like SSRIs so and things what like that it's interesting you say that because I actually started taking GABA two months ago mm -hmm. and I take Cymbalta as well mm -hmm. at a very low dose. I don't really, I don't, someone told me to start taking, I think the acupuncturist I've been seeing told me to start taking GABA. So I, and I feel pretty good. I don't know if it's that. I don't, I don't really know. But what is the science behind the importance of taking GABA while on SSRI or SNRI? Well, I generally don't mix them. Oh, um. so I shouldn't be on it? <laughs> well... <laughs> It's probably fine because they're not really targeting the same amino acid uh -huh. because GABA is a different neurotransmitter than serotonin. Oh. But I'm pretty, I'm, I'm cautious Why with drug nutrient interactions because a lot of times you're doing the same thing in two so different So it's actually just maybe increasing the... Yeah, it's pro it potentially is, you know, amplifying the effect. 
um, which may be a good thing in in your case. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah. I tend to do this. I'm like, someone told me something good. Let me try. <laughs> yeah, I have a database. So with my patients, I don't just like be like, hey, let's try some gamma. We look at all what your meds are. And right. we look to see what interactions, because you know, a lot of times we're trying to do the same thing mm -hmm. with herbal and nutrient support. Um, so I don't generally, if there's a warning light on that, I'm just really careful, or I'll wait until someone's weaned off. Um, it's you know, uh, clearly it's not you know, your whatever you're doing is not like right. you've been doing it for months. So, right. <laughs> but uh, and and it is two different neurotransmitters. I find that people with pelvic pain meet a lot of the characteristics of low GABA, which is like a tightness kind of anxiety. It's a physical anxiety. That's what I have always had. Like mentally, I've never really, I never feel mental anxiety. It's yeah. always my body. I, like I feel it in my body. Yes. That's more of a GABA type anxiety, whereas a serotonin type anxiety is more the worried thoughts, obsession, mm -hmm. obsessions might, may or may not be that, but worried, more worried thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, and because pelvic pain patients often have anxiety, but, and they're f literally physically tight in mm -hmm. the pelvic floor, I'm finding that GABA is a helpful part of their treatment. We just have to be careful of mixing it with other medication. <laughs> um, and then going back to IC for a second, are there any supplements now, you just had me thinking now that you're talking a little bit more about supplements and herbs, are there any supplements or herbs that you give women who have IC or IC symptoms that help either calm the bladder or coat the lining of the bladder that you found helpful? Well, I do stool testing and see if they have any like dysbiotic bacteria. And then sometimes we would add like berberine, uva ursi, things like that, or like calming herbs like marshmallow, um, which is also good for the um, lining of the digestive tract. Lactobacillus plantarum is a very calming bacteria. Um, I like, D-mannose, as I said, is a preventative um, strategy if someone's getting kind of chronic infections. So, yeah, and, and some people actually also do well with aloe. Mm -hmm. um, there's pros and cons to that. Aloe can, can be problematic over the long term, but in the short term it can be good if it's a good quality aloe. What, what can be problematic about it in the long term? You know, I haven't used that in a while, yeah. but I did write a blog post on it um, like three years ago. So search the blog okay. at integrativewomenshealthinstitute.com okay. and I, I talked about the pros and cons of aloe. Why do some GI specialists, functional medicine doctors not believe or not, maybe not believe is the right word, but they don't think that stool tests are a good diagnostic test. Why is that? Because I've heard that before. Like, oh, I don't, you don't need to do a stool test. You know, you have these symptoms, you have SIBO, or you have these symptoms, you have candida. Mm. Well, SIBO testing is mushy. Like, right. actually, a lot of the functional tests have only sort of moderate validity, mm -hmm. reliability. Um, SIBO particularly, because it's like you're literally like blowing into a straw, mm -hmm. you know, like the air isn't gonna be like perfectly it, yeah. contained in a vacuum. And my doctor didn't want me to do it. He was like, if you think you have these symptoms, 
you probably have treat it. you and I was like no no I want to do the test yeah and it, what I like about SIBO testing is it, it can be confirmatory it, it's useful information right um, stool testing is the same thing we're only seeing a little piece of the puzzle and we don't know like what a perfect microbiome is and if different people have different perfect microbiomes or different aberrant microbiomes so we're still there's still a lot of clinical guessing but I find that so I'd use a couple tests regularly in my practice that I find add useful information to the history and exam potentially one is stool testing like GI map to just really get a better idea of what's going on in the colon like as best as we can and to help target the probiotics and or you know antimicrobial herbs um, SIBO testing I don't generally use either unless somebody wants it because you can tell if someone's always bloated when they eat anything they have SIBO that's what I have <laughs> yeah I mean that's Clinically, right. that's what I've seen like 100% of the time. So I, I'm the same way. I don't really bother with SIBO testing unless mm -hmm. somebody wants to see it. Um, I do like organic acids testing because it helps me to see what's being absorbed. It's the best test for candida, um, at least certain kinds of candida. And so those are probably what the three. What is an that organic acids test? I've never it's heard of urine, that. You, uh, it's a urine test where they're looking at buildup of certain organic acids, literally like chemical components uh, of different biochemical cycles. So they can see if things are kind of stuck in different um, biochemical pathways, which will show you that there w could be potential deficiencies along the way. Um, so it's a urine test, it's not difficult to do, which is another positive. The other urine test I like is the Dutch test, which is a more comprehensive look at the hormones, which, you know, obviously we can't do if someone's on hormones or birth control, but if they're not and we have some hormone suspicion. The thing I like the most about that test or even just cortisol tests in general is it's very confirming for people who've been like fatigued and anxious and they just are like, I feel like things are off and no one believes me. And it's just like, yes it's off you know it's helpful to be like okay now i know what i'm supposed to do um thyroid testing comprehensive thyroid testing is also useful um, mma will look at beach a better test for b12 and uh, iron can be useful blood sugar testing can be useful so but any of these tests are in the context of what's going on and are we going to change anything we're going to do you know i come from a physical therapy background i'm very kind of physical you know and obviously I don't I don't even work a lot with my patients in person anymore but I'm thinking of it from a kind of holistic perspective so I wasn't really taught a lot of my medical colleagues were taught test a pharmaceutical a test B pharmaceutical B right so they just kind of do the same thing but with herbs or whatever it's a mindset whereas in physical therapy you really have to get good at history like what can you pick up from the history? What can you pick up from what they're not telling you? What can you pick up from the physical exam? And so I mostly don't use equipment other than, you know, and, and not even labs, unless I think it's gonna tell me something that I don't already feel like I know, and or if it will help the patient to really understand what's going on in a way that will motivate them to make the changes that can sometimes be hard. What are your thoughts on 
alcohol and caffeine. I guess in general, but specifically also for women with pelvic, pelvic pain. pain. So caffeine, um, the problem is it tends to mess with blood sugar. A little bit of caffeine, some people can tolerate. Not so much if they have bladder symptoms, but and and even in vulvodynia and I see you know like certain teas have caffeine, but they're very anti-inflammatory, so there can be benefit to that. Usually when we're doing an elimination diet, we take it out so that we see how the body responds without it. Alcohol is a different problem. It's, caffeine is too high. Histamine also dysregulates blood sugar. It depends on when you're drinking it. Um, a lot of times people drink alcohol at night, which will then mess up their, their hormones, which will influence their sleep, and poor sleep is really bad for pain. So, And yet, both of those things have social components. So once people get resilient, you know, I, I tell most of my patients, you know, expect, because usually people don't find me until they're in pretty bad shape, right? And so I'm like, expect six to 24 months to complete, you know, to really invest, to rebuild your resilience. And, you know, it's not unusual for it to take two years because you've you've had 15 years of pain, right? Or eight years or 10 years, right? And you've had a surgery or two or five, a baby, you know, things, it's gonna take us some time. But when you rebuild that resilience and then you use alcohol socially, occasionally, you know, a high quality glass of wine in the middle of the day where it's not gonna mess with your sleep, it's fine. Or even one glass of wine at the beginning of dinner, one coffee, you know, but you don't need it every day, it's not like part of your life, then we can usually work it back in. Why does the alcohol at night before, kind of closer to bedtime mess up your hormones? Well, because it's like sugar. So it oh. increases an insulin response, which will then crash your blood sugar eventually. So it tends to wake you up at mm -hmm. about three, four in the morning. Right, that's interesting. And I've found similar similarly with myself that coffee for some reason bothers everything it like sometimes i notice a little like the vulvodynia will flare at the end of the day my bladder like everything but what's so interesting is i can have black tea i feel great i found this new energy drink that i'm obsessed with it's called highball and it's sugar free there's like zero it's spark it's an energy sparkling water and it's okay. just sparkling water with green tea extract there's caffeine it just says like caffeine i could show, i have one in the fridge caffeine um another ca like guariana okay. plant extract yeah. and then uh, some natural flavors which i know like isn't the best but it's very like there's no citric acid or these acids or preservatives right. and it's kind of big it's like the size of this microphone and i'll drink like half of it and it gives me like sustained energy throughout the day. I don't get any, nothing, no bladder symptoms from it, like nothing. And it's also sparkling water, which I know is, some people say that can that be could, irritating. can be yeah. irritating. So I don't know why with me, just coffee. And if I have it once in a while, like after, like not on an empty stomach, I'm okay now, like better than I used to be. But same with alcohol. Like I used to, if I would, when I was really not feeling well, I would have a drink or two, or even if I would go out and have three drinks one night, which was very rare occasion for me, but I would be, I would be fully sick the next day. Yeah. Now, if I once in a while want to have a few drinks, I'm t 
totally okay the next day. And I know if I did that often, I probably wouldn't be. But I think I've spent well, the past two the years. Yeah, you have more mm-hmm. resilience now. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the, and the coffee, it just might be, you know, the acidity of it. There might be something in it you're reacting to, you're sensitive to. Um, but really, that's what I do see, is that people invest some time to figure out what's the right personalized plan for them not just the food but like everything else you know Uh and then you know maybe stop ultra spinning and like whatever you were like excessively doing recovery restoration good relationships good sleep good food then there's room for flexibility Mm -hmm. and this segues perfectly into the next question that I wanted to ask you, which is, it's kind of, it might be an easy question, it might be a hard question, because when women come to you, as you said, they've already most most often been struggling for a long time, so they're probably at a point when they come to you where they're ready to make changes and they're happy to have found you. But on the contrary, there's always those people who have a hard time getting started on a new regimen or a new program and I've like when people ask me oh how do you how do you do all of this like how do you live this way and I say I'm like because I know that this is gonna like it once you suffer and you know something's gonna help you get out of suffering doesn't matter you'll do whatever you have to do but for example I have a good friend of mine who has had horrible Lyme disease for 10 years and she's been to every doctor under the sun and they've all put her on anti-inflammatory diet no gluten no sugar no dairy and for whatever reason it is she can't stick to it Mm. so what is some piece of advice that you have for those patients who are suffering but they have such a hard time making the change making this lifestyle change two things i think get a coach Mm -hmm. the accountability is really helpful health coaching is essential but not only is the accountability important but you have to you have to make a decision that this is more getting because pain doesn't motivate people you know it motivates people for up to 60 to 90 days is what the data shows like even if you literally had a heart attack and the doctor's like stop eating mcdonald's you'll do it because you're afraid for 60 to 90 days and then you're like eh, i'm fine so that's an initial spark but long-term motivation comes from the support of i'm ready to live differently so you have to have different friends who are also kind of living in that direction it doesn't mean you get rid of all your old friends but it does mean that you spend more time with people who are a healthier lifestyle and that's socially part of what they do you start to navigate like why are you self-sabotaging what are you really afraid of from kind of an emotional standpoint you know there are sometimes benefits to still being sick um there it's scary to get out of a chronic condition that you've had for a long time it's part of your identity and it means things are going to be different in some way and anytime there's uncertainty there's a subconscious or conscious fear. Um, Also, you know, there's different expectations that people have of you, depending on what condition you're in. You know, 
so, so there are risks to improving your health. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people, it's hard to really understand those until you kind of sit and address those. And there are social risks. It's actually, there are physiologic risks to sort of being kicked out of your social circle. So let's say, you know, you have IC, but what your friends do is go drinking every Friday night or every day or, how, you know, twice a month or whatever. And you can no longer really participate in that. Or they have pizza after work and that's part of like the bonding. It's actually, there's a physiologic risk hormonally even that if you don't participate in this social group that's sort of your social group and you're sort of left out in the cold imagine if you were you know it's evolutionarily if you're kicked out of the tribe like you die right so deep ingrained in us is a fear of not changing not being kicked out of the tribe mm. so we have to have the new tribe we have to have the new vision we have to have different people supporting us when we're making these changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. But it's very, it's very true. And I also think that something that I've found helpful, well, for example, my sister used to be a vegan and mm -hmm. she would have no problem going to dinner with a bunch of people and just ordering sides of vegetables. And mm -hmm. I would look at her and I would be like, how the hell can you do that? Like I would feel, so, and I'm pretty, comfortable in my own skin and outspoken and I was like that, how, how can you do that and then she kind of taught me that like it's okay like it's okay to be different it's okay to and even you know my, my dad always says to me like everyone has something like yeah. it's okay to have your thing your thing is that you go you know all your friends are getting bagels in the morning and you can't have a bagel because you don't eat gluten because you know that gluten's going to give you a horrible stomach ache for the next week you you know that's your thing you can't have a bagel but you can do a million other things that maybe they can't do so it's like and, and i don't mean that in a way like to put someone else down necessarily but it's like if you can figure out a way to own the problem that you have and feel more comfortable with it and once you kind of get into a habit of living that way, it becomes easier, I've found at least. It's true, I mean, I think that, you know, it's true, everybody has Something. stuff. Uh -huh. And I think that's even harder for people to see now, like younger people, because, you know, everything social always media. looks perfect, yeah. right? Like on social media, like my daughter is uh, 15, and you know, <laughs> they take, she'll take like, 50 pictures of herself uh, and her friends and she'll post you know they right. they like literally sort of curate their life and da 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 and you know it's it's pretty and stuff but there there's a lack of reality sometimes that I think people in younger generations have an even worse um, expectation of because you know when I was really until I was like 35 they didn't even have, I don't even know when social media has been around, but it's a long time. Like mm -hmm. I wasn't a teenager, I wasn't in my 20s, whatever. So there becomes this unrealistic expectation of what life looks like. And it's helpful to know that for everyone, and, and as a clinician, you know, I can say this with like 100% confidence because I've met a lot of people who are very, high achieving, I've met a, met a lot of people who are sick, a lot of people who are homeless and sick, like 
everybody has stuff has mental health stuff has physical health stuff has relationship problems has financial problems you know everyone does and the more comfortable you get with just being okay with that for yourself I think it also makes you a more compassionate person because you're a person who's open to other people having their stuff and it makes you less judgmental it makes you more comfortable in 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 situations that are new but i do think that it takes some work to grow in that direction and that's why i think health coaches are such a valuable part of the team because they help you really assess like what's important to you and and why certain you're motivated to do certain things and what fears you have about not doing them and what fears you have about doing new things and the practical challenges i mean sometimes you know i have a patient who travels internationally a lot for work so we we sometimes do have to navigate just practical things or like you know for years i went some i, I haven't had dairy really for 20 years um except two weeks ago when i was in southern italy where the food is just different um, or occasionally when I'm in France. Italy and France, it's a whole different thing. But generally, I, I don't eat dairy and haven't for years um, and because I have a sensitivity to it. And for years, probably almost all of those years, every time I'd go to my mother-in-law's house, she'd be like, I got you skim milk for your issue. And I'm like, thanks. It's still milk. Um, <laughs> So then you have to learn, like, how do I navigate right. that? Um, what if you're at someone's house for dinner? And there are ways to gracefully do anything. Um, That's funny. You know. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. Since I'm so grateful to have you here, and you've been touching on this throughout the past hour, but I want you to reiterate one more time because as I've continuously said, you can do a much better job than I can of this, but I feel so strongly about everything that you say. I, I agree with so strongly. For the women or men listening who don't understand, and I think that they'll understand better after listening to this, but who still don't understand how what they eat affects the way that they feel, can you just hit that point home one more time? Yeah, so what you eat is a huge part of how your digestive, immune, nervous system, and endocrine or hormone systems function. And if you are inflamed or you have an environment that invites uh, aberrant hormones, aberrant immune function, your nervous system to be chronically upregulated, those things can be improved with nutrition and especially as you calm the inflammation and you're able to absorb more nutrients because every single thing that every single one of your cells runs on are nutrients. It's micronutrients, it's macronutrients, amino acids, it's fatty acids, it's vitamins, it's minerals, it's all of that. And if we can't you know, at kind of a basic physiologic level support a good environment for all those systems to function, there's going to be an, uh, an effect. And 
it's really very similar. Like I was talking about, it's similar in Alzheimer's, it's similar in cancer, it's similar in other autoimmune diseases. Um, it's just that different people have different challenges resulting from um, a poor food plan. And for some people it's headaches, for some people it's dementia, for some people it's cardiovascular disease. For people listening today, it's pelvic pain. And so if you want to change your pelvic pain, one of the most powerful things you can do is start optimizing your your physical environment and food is a great way to do that. Thank you. You're welcome. There's two listener questions that I want to have you answer before I read these two questions. Are there any resources that you want to recommend? So you can find everything we create at integrativewomenshealthinstitute.com. And we, if you go to public resources, which is on the top navigation or... And this is your website. Um, that's the right. website, integrativewomenshealthinstitute.com. If you go to the top bar, it says public resources. And we do have a kind of DIY pelvic pain program. Um, and in about a month, we will have a, a book specific to endometriosis and a program in October timeframe to support women with endometriosis. And currently available on Amazon Kindle is a, a book, it's very inexpensive, Nutrition for Relieving Pelvic Pain. So that's a deeper dive into what we've been talking about today. Both those books will be available on Amazon by the end of August. Amazing, thank you. Um, okay, so the first question is, let me pull it up, okay. And these are both of these questions you've touched upon, but if there's just a particular pointer you want to pull um, from what you had already discussed. So the first question is, any recommendations that you have in terms of supplements and diet for a woman going through menopause? Yeah, so menopause is an issue of low estrogen. So if your pelvic pain is related to menopause, you know, you might be having sexual pain, vulvovaginal pain related to menopause we want to enhance your estrogen. So more fats, less sugars and grains, keep that blood sugar steady. Uh, lots of avocados, lots of coconut oil, you know, some nuts and seeds, lots of olive oil, olives, great. And then specifically to support estrogen, pomegranates, maca, which is a uh, mighty maca is my favorite, developed by Dr. Anna Kabeca. That's so funny, my mom, uses that maca the mighty maca the mighty maca yeah. it's so good and she just sent me that doctor's information Anna, she wants me to have her on the podcast you she's should. obsessed with her yeah she's great she's a good friend of mine she we i'm hopefully going to see her in like two weeks um and she also has created another great thing there are two creams that i really like for vulvovaginal dryness related to menopause um is Jolva, which anna developed it's a DHEA cream so the only time you have to be careful is postpartum and sometimes um, if you've had breast cancer you have to talk to your uh, oncologist and the other is a company called Rosebud Woman which creates a vulvar moisturizer which I really like just day to day or you can use it as a lubricant um, those are my amazing top drawer suggestions for menopause yeah. and so the next question is in regards to SIBO which as I said we did talk a bit about 
Um, but this question is, can you shed some light on how SIBO affects pelvic pain and how to manage, get rid of it? I know that's a very long answer, but maybe one reason, one, like the most prominent reason as to why SIBO can exacerbate pelvic pain and like one thing that someone could do to kind of kickstart the healing of SIBO. Yeah, so it irritates pelvic pain in a number of ways. We don't probably don't know all of them because, like I said, if you just treat SIBO, in half the cases you get rid of IC without doing anything else. So it must be irritating the immune system in some way. Um, how to get rid of it? Think about how you could have gotten it. So that's what we talked about, right? The stomach acid or the ileocecal valve has a problem. And, and or there might be adhesions, things like that related to surgeries, endometriosis, etc you have to kill it off with antimicrobial herbs or rifaximin. It usually takes more than one course. There could also be fungi, it could be complicated, but also create an environment where bacteria doesn't want to thrive, right? If you're chill, if you're happy, if you're supported, this is helpful versus a stressed environment. In a stressed environment, you're contributing to intestinal per permeability. And uh, unfortunately, while we seem to be nice homes for bacteria, they're not good to us. If we're stressed, they, they take over. So think about how your SIBO could have gotten there, visceral pelvic physical therapy and, and things like um, supplements to help with um, better, like faster digestion, peristalsis, uh, are important if you're sluggish and then get support for your stomach acid. Thank you. Um, and then, so do you want to one more time say where everyone listening can contact you if they have any additional questions or want to go on your website or reach out to you or follow you on Instagram? Absolutely. So the website and is... And I'll link all of this in the show notes as well, but go ahead. Sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So the website is integrativewomenshealthinstitute.com. On Instagram, we're at Integrative Women's Health. And on Facebook, also Integrative Women's Health Institute. That's where I am most often on Instagram or Facebook. You can send me a message. You can send our team a message through the website. And we do have um, patient-level programs. I do see a few patients a week at a clinic in Connecticut, but I also work with patients from there all over the world. Um, so that's available if you want, you know, specific care for yourself. Amazing. Thank you again. And I'm so happy that you are here today. I've wanted a guest like you on the podcast for over a year now. So this oh, so was glad. the perfect, um, the perfect way to, to have all the information that you, you know, be, um, communicated to everyone listening and for everyone listening please share your thoughts comments questions about this episode or any other episode at info at the women's pelvic health podcast.com i would love to hear from you and as always please rate and review the podcast in the itunes store i wish all of you health healing and happiness